Bonjour. Grüezi. Buongiorno. Bundi. Do you know the name of these four languages? Est-ce que vous aimez les chips faifolo paprika, l'ovo maltine, ou peut-être le cenovis? Sapete dove il ticino? Haben Sie schon ein St. Galler Bratwurst mit Burle genossen? If you answered yes to some of these questions and you don't live in Switzerland, you may be part of the more than 700,000 Swiss citizens who live abroad. Congratulations! This podcast is for you and for the ones who stayed in land but are curious to learn more about why you left, I know, that sounds crazy, and other irrelevant questions. Welcome to Fifth Switzerland, La Cinquième Suisse. I'm your host, Valérie. Hello, today I welcome Caroline of Stettler. My first question goes to you. What do you do when you move to a new place that doesn't offer any real cheese? The real click was the moment when I was standing in a line to shop in a deli where I heard a lady in front of me asking for monster cheese sliced real thin. And I was like, what? So I looked what he would give her and I saw this big, ugly, yellow, orange block of cheese. Through her work, Caroline ended up knowing more and more cheesemakers in the Alps and created a program called Adopt an Alp. I really, really have a soft spot in my heart for those people who still go on the Alp and keep on that tradition alive. And I thought, you know, you have to support them. She works tirelessly to teach her American customer about Swiss quality cheese. The Swiss, we are too humble and we don't market ourselves well enough, especially when it comes to food. You know, now I'm at food shows at a regular basis and I see people from other countries present their foods. And when I think of Switzerland, I'm so proud, you know, what all that we have, the heritage, the stories to tell. So, are you ready to learn more? Hello, Caroline. Welcome to my podcast, Fifth Switzerland. Hello. Thanks for having me. So first, I'm going to introduce you just shortly. So you grew up in Biel, Bien. And as a child, you were already passionate about good, simple food. And you enjoyed to visit your aunts and uncles who were living on farms. And you said in an interview that one of your favorite memories was the weekly visit to get cheese each Saturday with your dad. Yeah. And that, <laughs> that you would go home with two pounds of cheese and your mother would insist that it was way too much for your family of three. But your father would answer, do we have any left from last week? <laughs> and there never was. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody was eating a lot of cheese. Yeah. And so then as a student, you pursued a bachelor in political science in Zurich because you wanted to become a journalist, but there was no journalism bachelor at that time. And you found a job with a spot paper. And after seven years, you made the move to become freelance. 
And so I'm really very curious to learn more about how you went from being a sport journalist in Switzerland to a cheese importer in Florida. So I guess let's begin with your decision to become a freelancer. Well, I always was, as you said, wanted to become a writer, a journalist. And at the time, you could study journalist sciences, but not really the writing. So at the moment, I had the opportunity to make a stage at this one paper that had an opening, which was a sports paper. I said, look, if you give me a mentor and I can learn everything from scratch, I will take it and I will even leave university, which I did because I was never very happy with political science. And so they put me into cycling. And for six years, I followed cyclists from the 1st of January until the end of October when, you know, all the races were done. And so I liked it because you could travel, you saw so many things, you ate so many foods. It's actually a big part of my next life with the cheese because in Belgium and France and Asia, everywhere we ate. After six years, I was really tired of dealing with nothing but those cyclist men. I went to my boss and I said, look, it's not fair if I do this anymore. I'm tired. I need other people. I need other impact. And, you know, if I go to an interview and say, oh, no, not talking to him again today, <laughs> not fair, you know, because journalism is creative. Of course, you have facts, but you interpret those facts. So he convinced me, my boss, to continue. So I tried to do another year and right in, I saw, no, I shouldn't do it. No fair. So I quit. Basically, I tried to become a freelancer, finding out what I didn't want to do. And I ended up in food and wine and culinary and so forth. So that's where I found my niche. And then becoming, you know, a freelance, it had its scary sides, of course, Income-wise, you never knew what comes in, what not, what can you do, what not. But I also realized the freedom that I had. I could say no if I didn't want to do something. And I could work late that night and not go to a meeting at 9 a.m. the next morning. So I really, really enjoyed that lifestyle. And my partner in life, who later became my husband, who I had met through journalism, joined me only two or three years later. And so we were the two of us in our press bureau, which was really fun. And I have never, ever since worked a job anymore for someone else. So you began to be a freelance journalist speaking about food in Switzerland. So for how long did you do that? I did this from 92, I would say, until we have moved here. In the beginning, I still wrote for Swiss magazines and some German ones, um, newspapers. The cheese and the writing still interfered for a little while. They overlapped, but uh, it became too complicated. You decide to move to Florida. Is it, I mean, your husband found a position or he had a project there? Or No, my husband is Swiss too. 
I always say it wasn't planned, it happened. You know, we were young and we both were journalists. When you're a journalist, you, you kind of have a gypsy within you. You travel a lot. You enjoy traveling. You want to explore places. You enjoy new places, new people, new cultures. And so we traveled a lot. Whenever we had even a short period of time, we would go somewhere together where we didn't see the papers or anything. And often it was a place where we had guaranteed nice weather and possibly an ocean. This is what you don't have. One of the few things Switzerland doesn't have. So, you know, Miami became a very easy destination. I mean, we happened to come here more and more. We traveled. We rented a house for a whole winter. We thought, well, there's a lot to write about from here. You know, next winter we stayed longer. And then over time, we had two young children. And when they became a bit older, we said, you know, we need to think this over. We're both not teacher types, so homeschooling, no thank you. So we said, well, let's try, you know. And we had friends here. They arranged for a house for us. And we basically tried and got stuck. So <laughs> here we are, 26 years later. <laughs> That's interesting. That's not so often that people end up in a place going bit by bit. You know, you go there a little bit longer, a little bit longer, and you'd end up settling in. And then, so you moved there in 96. So what was the moment you decided, hmm, I should import <laughs> cheese? Well, that was a very American story. I think looking back also... You know, I did a lot of writing when I was here and I followed the whole food scene. I read all the Wednesday food sections of the big papers. I was subscribed to all those magazines and food was really up and coming. And where I lived in this little corner of Florida, it's not San Francisco or New York City. And at the time, cheese was just almost inexistent. And I really missed the cheese from the very beginning. And the real click was the moment when I was standing in a line to shop in a deli where I heard a lady in front of me asking for monster cheese sliced real thin. And I was like, what? So I looked what he would give her and I saw this big, ugly, yellow, orange block of cheese. And I thought, okay, you are in the wrong movie here. That is not good. And so I went home and I called a friend of mine who happens to be an, an affineur in Switzerland. And I said, look, what just happened to me, it's horrible. And out of a joke, I said, maybe I have to start importing your cheese. And he said, well, you know, I had a phone call once from a chef in New York who wanted my cheese. And so it must have set a little bit and a little less than a year later, I said, you know, why don't I try? And I packed a cooler with three big pieces of Swiss cheese, Prince, Emmentaler, Gruyere, and I took off on a trial journey. That's incredible. It's true that a lot of business are born out of necessity. You are somewhere and you can't get what you need, so then you begin a business. It's true. It's very often you hear this kind of story and uh, I can understand you because 
every time I stand at the supermarket and people are ordering cheese and the, <laughs> for me the worst is when they ask for Swiss cheese and there is this ugly square melted white cheese and that's what they call Swiss cheese. I know the Swiss companies, they fought it in courts in the United States and they lost. You see, where are able to have them stop calling it Swiss cheese? Because here they say it's, you know, a common name, so you can't. But it's really sad to imagine that's what this Swiss cheese is. Yeah. It still has this reputation a little bit. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I really believe that the Swiss, we are too humble and we don't market ourselves well enough, especially when it comes to food. You know, now I'm at food shows at a regular basis and I see people from other countries present their foods. And when I think of Switzerland, I'm so proud, you know, what all that we have, the heritage, the stories to tell, the integrity, the traceability, all of this, where other countries have to fight to get it. And we have it in our basket. We don't show it off. We don't even show it sometimes. And I walk through a food show and I think to myself, Switzerland doesn't even have one pavilion. We have like maybe when it's really good for booths that work together and else every company is on their own trying, you know, to hand out samples. And it's like, come on, let's celebrate that food that we have. doing a lot of words on that behalf I have to say and I mean imagine you when you began with your cooler who did you go to some chefs or yes at the beginning because I had been following for my journalism all these restaurants all that scene I did a two weeks long trip into five cities and I had appointments with really the top chefs and restaurants and addresses under which there was a Swiss chef in New York at the time who refused to taste my Gruyere. Oh. Because he said, look, my Gruyere costs a third of what yours costs. I don't even want to taste. And I said, chef, you should taste it just for this. He said, no, I'm not. I will never buy it. And I said, so what chocolates do you use? Oh, only the best. Okay. So what's on your wine list? Oh, only the best. Burgundies. Bordeaux. And I said, well, there's levels in cheese too, you know, but he had no open ears for me. And so, yes, in the beginning, mainly it was a lot of education. That was my main work. I had no idea about doing business in general, no idea about doing business in America. And I had no name in that field. So I just showed up with my coolers. I was on time always. And I presented three fabulous cheeses and I had to explain everywhere. But at the time, I was the only one bringing in Swiss specialties. I mean, there were companies, you know, the big ones that brought those blocks that brought the commodity cheeses with those names, Swiss King Cut, um, Gruyere King Cut, Swiss whatever. 
And there was raclette and all of this, but it was monthly commodities. And then someone came and said, oh, I also can bring you this or that. And so that was a special start. And that was very fascinating because it was a challenge, but it was also very gratifying when I saw in the eyes of someone, wow, that's a great cheese. Then you knew, okay, I have done something right here. I can imagine the challenge because, you know, I see even with French people here, they don't know the difference between Gruyere and Emmental, and they all get very confused to which one is the horse, for example. Yeah. <laughs> and even being Swiss myself, having been uh, raised in Switzerland, I remember the first time I tried an Emmental, a real one, I mean, the one who are, you know, uh, in cave for a long time. And I found, wow. Emmental can be so good because I always had the one who was, you know, more the industrial ones. I was really surprised myself, you see. (laughs) On this question of educating people, I was interested to know, you know, because you are mainly dealing with a lot of customers who don't know anything about Switzerland. So what's your elevator pitch to explain Switzerland? If you have, you know, like one minute to explain Switzerland to somebody, what do you say? Well, you know, people do have a very specific image of Switzerland. They might not know it, but they do have an image. And it is true. All the cliches that we talk about, quality, the mountains, the chocolate, the cleanliness. And my favorite is to show them pictures. And that's also a little bit how I discovered my love for the Alp cheeses and for the transhumans and that lifestyle, because it's like concentrated Switzerland and it still exists. It's not Heidi, the story. It's Switzerland 2022. When you go, when you travel with Americans in Switzerland, which I started to do more and more, because really at that time in the beginning of my cheese business, putting a piece of cheese into a hand of a chef or later store buyers, putting that cheese in their mouth. That's really what gets them because the quality is here because the product is great. It's not me. It's not the packaging. It's really the cheese that speaks for itself. And so I realized that when you go to Switzerland, when you show these people a market or a chalet, high up. It's so emotional. It's so touching and it's so impressive. I have had a 350 pound heavy stout stern butcher become cheesemonger who left the country after visiting for seven days. And he was crying at the airport of Geneva. And he said, look, I go home a better person, a better husband, a better father. I understand so much more. This changed my life. I mean, I said, Galen, this made my life, you know, not just my day. Switzerland is all the good things and everything has its turnaround side, of course. But Switzerland really has to offer a lot. And I say to people, look, we can go stay in a luxury resort and you can use the spa area and do wellness and all of this. But we can also go in a really tiny little hotel somewhere outside. You can be assured it will be clean. They will be friendly. You will have very good food and your bed will be really comfortable. And they always choose the second. I also know the downsides to me is 
in Switzerland, things are very, very slow. Like, you know, that's just how our political system works. But when you look at the advantages, it's really amazing. If you can get where the cheese was made, that's a completely other level of comprehension on what it means, food and the link to nature and the love of people who make this food. Exactly. You know, at some point, I knew that one of my cheesemakers that I work closely with would be in New York landing with his family as the start of a vacation. And I said, if you're here, we need to do something. Give me three hours of that vacation, please. And I treat you and your wife to a really, really good dinner afterwards. That's our exchange. And he agreed. Uh, it was in November on a Saturday afternoon. We rented a bistro, a wine bar in New York City. It has 32 chairs. And I thought, well, how do I do this now? So we basically did a VIP invitation for those people who had supported this cheesemaker's products from the very beginning because nobody knew them. They were extremely expensive, but also extremely extraordinary. So I invited 32 people, great customers. There was a heavy snowstorm that day. The people from Boston couldn't make it. They got stuck in the middle. But we were there. We had a range tasting of seven cheeses. We had chosen the wines. He showed up with three bottles of a very specific champagne because this was his favorite wine to this favorite cheese and that batch of it. So we did a tasting and he only talks with German, nothing else. And he is from shy to very open. Without the wine, only ah. the other <laughs> was already thinking maybe the champagne. No, 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 no. But that was his dedication, his passion. He knew there was enough wine, but he took the effort to bring three bottles of wine. One of his boys, who was 10 at the time, had one bottle in his suitcase. Anyway, so we did this tasting and I translated. And the more we go on, the longer periods he speaks. And I had to stop him and say, wait, I need to translate this. So we did. In the end, people were fascinated and smitten by the cheeses. One lady, she came and she says, you know, those hands, they said it all. People see the little things. Well, yeah, he has huge hands because he works with them all day long, you know, and they are red like a butcher. So that's what you said, the connection. If those people go and see, wow, and this is my customer's favorite cheese is this from Switzerland. And now I can meet you and I sit at the table and you pour me coffee and your wife made a cake just because we show up. These are the really happy moments, you know, for everybody involved. And it does really create a respect for everyone that sits at the table. The farmer, they ask, well, how does he present my cheese? Or a chef, how does he serve or use my cheese? So then all of a sudden they see the challenges they face and the people who sell the cheese see the challenges the farmer faces. It's very cleansing and very humbling and healthy, in my opinion. 
give me envy next time I go to Switzerland to... You should join us on one of those trips when I bring a group and we go serious. Because it's, it's always like, when every time I walk in the Alps, you see these farms, I mean, that are only there in summer with all the cows. And I remember walking with my children and niece and nephew and the farmer would make them try the milk from the cows. And, you know, I think they will always remember that, the taste. I wanted to go on on the theme of cheese. I found interesting the story of the Swiss Cheese Union. The Swiss Cheese Union was formed in 1914. It was a government-led organization that supported specific cheesemakers to produce standard cheese in Switzerland, like Gruyere and Sprinzel and Thaler. This union was eliminated in 1999. And uh, all of a sudden, it was very hard for cheesemakers. They were facing a crisis. I found interesting what you said about what it created afterwards, because they were in this crisis situation. What was the outcome of that? Well, there was, as always, you know, it's the good and the bad together. And the cheese union really was a big support for those people who did what always had been done. What you said, standard cheeses of Switzerland that were big export products, but also it tied the hands of those people who had sparking ideas and were creative and wanted to try their own things. So once the moment that it's, it's like a wall breaks together, all of a sudden you're free and you can breathe and you can go and try and explore. So those people who were flexible enough and ready to say, okay, now, boom, now we have open field. They really had an open field and a lot of opportunities. And that's when I think our cheese landscape in Switzerland really started to blooming and blowing and flowering and get interesting. And we have now products that most people wouldn't even believe they come from Switzerland, you know, soft cheeses and blue cheeses and people who work with specific milk and want a specific level of quality of the milk, who work with the farmers who know all the animals that deliver that milk. It's wonderful. I even heard you tell the example of somebody who's making the milk without electricity, with the moon. That's one of my alt farmers. He makes a cheese called full moon cheese, and he only crafts this cheese during full moon nights. So he has per summer three to four nights where he can make that cheese. And he works without any electricity. He works literally in the moonlight. And he tells you how mystic this is, the process, what a different connection he, as the cheesemaker, develops to that milk and then to the end product. Maybe it's true. Who knows? <laughs> he makes around 40 to 55 wheels a year, a summer. So it's wonderful, you know, and even just the fact that someone is thinking about these things and, and thinking outside of the box. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It must be beautiful, you know, in a way, in the moonlight. Yeah. At least for him, it must be a great experience, even if we will never have the chance to try his cheese. <laughs> in 2013, you created Adopt an Alp, and I've seen that now you have like 33 cheesemakers. 35. 
So can you explain what your project is, why you do that? So Adopt and Up, as I said, over the course of time working with Cheese, I realized, you know, I have very close connections with the people I work with, the producers, and I really, really have a soft spot in my heart for those people who still go on the Alp and keep on that tradition alive. And I thought, you know, you have to support them. You have to show them your love, but that's not enough. Other people's love too. And first and foremost, you have to teach people, what is this? So I came up with a program where I approach store owners, chefs, more and more private people who want to jump on the wagon in the spring and early summer when the people are starting to get up on the Alp. And we have a website, we have a map. It's a very one-to-one and very labor and time-intense process. I sit down with a person, with a store owner, let's say, look, what matters to you? Who do you want to support? A family, a co-op? Some tell me, I want the highest altitude out or I want the ones that brings the most children up there, or my grandfather has visited Valais, I want an Alpine Valais. So it's all what matters to them. So we narrow down the options, and then they pick their Alp. And so in the spring, when they pick their Alp, they commit to a certain amount of cheese that they will receive in the fall. And it's a three-time delivery early October, early November, early December, and then it's over. Then we wait again till the next fall. That's one of the ideas behind it, to learn how to wait and to accept seasonality. The really fun thing is that the whole summer, while the farmers are on the out, we are in touch with these people and we post on social media, on the website. So each time I have a post from AlpX, I contact everyone with Alpex, say, hey, update, check this. So they really can follow their Alp and see the everyday life and create an understanding that I ask them to share with their end clientele, the end consumer. So they have all summer to really build an interest and a curiosity. The idea should be that in the fall, when I say, hey, next week we receive the first wheels, People should stand in line three rows down. My idea is, again, to create mutual respect and understanding so that people, the consumers, are willing to pay a little more for that cheese because they understand for some of these people, it takes more effort to produce five wheels at five kilos a day than for a big company to push out 5,000 wheels a day. It's so totally different. Only when people understand this will they be willing to also support. With the pandemic, the past two years, actually, I found that Adopt and Out was so timely. All of a sudden, everyone was dreaming and talking about the traceability of food, the connection to food, the connection to the producer, animal welfare, natural life. All of this naturally happens every day on the Alp. This is my passion. I have four children of my own. This is my fifth and last baby. It's a passion. It makes me happy. And, you know, if I could do only this anymore, I would right now. I would sign that contract.
I totally understand. And you get to go in the Alps that way because you have to go to see these people to speak with them and maintain the relationship. So that's great. too. Well, I don't complain about my job. Sometimes it takes patience. You have hurdles and obstacles and people that you like more or less everywhere. And it's better you learn that early on and you're able to deal somehow with it. Thank you, Caroline. I found that very interesting, really, all the story of all these cheese that still made. It's true in the Alps and with the transhumance. I don't know if you would pronounce that in English, but... I mean, I remember as a child when I was seeing every autumn the cows going back down from the Alps. You can taste the difference of the cheese when it's winter or summer. I think it's incredible the complexity of the product because it's only milk at the end, but it can be so different. I find it fascinating. And I love cheese too. So I, I understand that you are passionate about educating people about what it can be, you know, and not only this melted horrible cheese, but really. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That was you. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's depressing to see this. Yeah, it's sad. I go to a market. I helped founding a farmer's market where I live 12 years ago. There was no farmer's market here. So I said, look, my best friend, she was a French baker. We had a friend, her husband was a fisherman. I said, there must be other people. Let's gather and put us all together and give people what they deserve and probably look for. So we started the market. And I always say that's the amount of patience I have on Saturday mornings to get all those comments that are so wrong and just unproved. So there's a lot of work to be done, really. Yes. But you seem to have a lot of energy to fight. <laughs> yeah, for right now, yes. <laughs> but I would like to end this interview with a sentence I found, I guess, on your website. And I really like that because it says, true cheese talks, it tells the truth. There is nothing to add to that. Caroline, it was a pleasure. Thank you for your time and for your passion and all the work you're doing. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you too, honestly. And all the best uh, with your company. You. Who knows? Maybe I'm going to be able to order one day some cheese from you. I would turn it around. I was about to say, who knows? Maybe I contact you once I'm in Switzerland going to the Alps and we can go together. It would oh, I would love that. I would really love that. Thank you, Caroline. Bye-bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye.